Welcome to Change Board's Future Talent Podcast, our series of exclusive interviews with senior business leaders and thinkers to uncover their perspectives on the changing world of work. I'm Mary Appleton, Change Board's Chief Editor. Today, I'm joined by Bruce Daisley, who runs Twitter's business in Europe, Middle East and Africa, and his team is responsible for the development of Twitter across these countries. He also runs the top business podcast, Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat. Don't forget to subscribe to the Future Talent Podcast and listen to our range of interviews via iTunes, SoundCloud or Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today, Bruce talks about his feelings on the state of work, his own podcast series, Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat, and his mission to help people be happier at work, including his new work manifesto, which involves eight simple changes that anybody can make to make work better for them. He also discusses his role at Twitter and the culture of the business, as well as his view on the digital revolution and how technology businesses can be more inclusive when it comes to talent. And he outlines his hopes for a more enlightened workplace of the future. So Bruce, lovely to have you with us today. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Um, How does it feel being on the other side of the podcast microphone today? Yeah, yeah, the funny thing is, like, when I started doing my podcast, um, the thing I used to say to people about them is that um, I could very comfortably say that some of them were quite good because I was barely in them. So I felt like <laughs> I was I was a, a spectator on these experts in the world of, world of neuroscience or organisational behaviour, and I was just merely sort of throwing them fish to, to sort of get them to perform their tricks, really. Okay, so you run a podcast called Eat, Work, Sleep, Repeat. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about that. What, what's it about? So what happened was about a year and a half ago, I was sitting and I think, look, you know, I think the, the candid thing is that a lot of people find themselves confronted with the fact that there's no easy jobs anymore. Right. <laughs> and whether you romanticize about your old job or whether you look at you, the job that your parents used to do and they seem to have like these sedate, manageable levels of demands upon them. And then you look at your own job now and you go, man, I, I don't want to let on to anyone, but I feel absolutely exhausted and yeah. broken by this. Yeah. And I think it's a universal condition now. Jobs seem a lot harder, objectively and subjectively. Jobs seem a lot harder than they were a few years ago. And I found myself in that situation where I was thinking, you know, looking around me, people looked more exhausted than ever before. And uh, I didn't know what to do. You know, I, I candidly... Um, had found myself in a situation where people who used to visit our office, sort of Twitter office in London, yeah. they used to say, oh, the culture here is fantastic. And then I used to look around going, man, you scratch below the surface and I don't think we're doing anywhere near as well as we should. Okay. So I started it more out of a sense of self-learning, thinking if I can speak to a few people who are experts yeah. and give myself the excuse to contact them, then maybe I'll learn how to improve culture here. Ah, okay. So you talk to people who are kind of experts in the field of the world of work um, to, to uncover different perspectives on what's happening. Can you talk about maybe a couple of interviews that you've done that you, you've really learned something from? The thing I've been really um, 
overwhelmed and sort of uh, completely bewitched by is the way that, in the same way our mobile phones have transformed in the last 10, 15 years, so has the capability of, of other technologies. So there's something called people meters that um, a group of people at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology have created. And if you imagine the little lanyard badges that you hang around your neck to get into to most offices, they've effectively put the, sort of the, the workings of mobile phones inside those badges. Right, okay. so far, so interesting. So all they are, they're people meters, and what they allow you to do is see who in the office is near someone else, who's spoken to someone else, and what interactions they've had. Yeah. And so what that's allowed the people at MIT to do is try and diagnose little patterns of behavior. So you've effectively got heat maps. So, you know, some offices you see people sitting silently, and I, and I suspect we all recognize the new modern environment, which is people sitting at desks with headphones on. Yeah. We all recognize that yeah. because, you know, it, as an attempt to escape open plan offices, a lot of people now, irrespective of their age, are putting headphones on to try and remove some of the distractions. So what they did is their people meters looked at some offices you can see that pattern, some offices you can see uh, more interactions. And the fascinating thing for me is that the guy who originated the work, a guy called Sandy Pentland, um, said that you can basically look and the offices that are the most creative are the ones that there's more chat in them. Okay, yeah. Right, okay. Because I guess intuitively, any of us who and maybe experienced enough to be readers of your magazine or to, to listen to this podcast, will recognise there was a time when um, when people used to chat more in the office and whether that was just coming into the office and, and asking each other what was on last night's TV or just, you know, casual chit-chat about what, what you're doing tonight. But there used to be more chatter in the office. And I don't think it's a generational reflection, but more a reflection of the increasing amount of demands upon us that chat's been squeezed out of the offices. Yeah. And so it's fascinating that when you look at the expert, Sandy Pentland, who says chat correlates with creativity... Well, most of us know that in the next 10, 15 years, as automation comes along and, and sort of algorithms do a lot of the other stuff that, that uh, is, has previously been done by humans, creativity is going to be the thing that we rely upon. Yeah. Creativity is the human payoff. Yeah, the human element. And yeah. so if we're looking and we're saying the things that are crushing chat in an office are actually crushing creativity, then you realise, okay, you probably need to change something about the way that, that work is constructed. So I think that for me has been, of all the podcasts I've done, and I've actually chatted to uh, another guy called Ben Wabber, who's, whose firm has turned that work from MIT into a business. Okay. Um, but the, of all the people I've chatted to, they're the people who I've been most inspired by because I thought okay they're using technology to show us the way to improve work and to fix work okay and you've come up with a a new work manifesto haven't you has that come out of the podcast that you've been doing yeah so what happened was um myself and uh, a friend colleague who um she's the ceo of, of magnetic who who do the marketing for magazines and we were both presented with sort of the work they'd been doing. She'd been on a couple of podcasts and we were both thinking there must be a way to try and sort of espouse a desire to improve work. And actually my belief, and, and Sue firmly shares it, is that the way we're going to fix work is by taking stuff out of it. 
okay. uh, which is, you know, sort of counter to maybe what a lot of people believe. Mm. You know, I see I'm exposed to the work of, of our HR department and, you know, they'll say we're doing work to introduce new 360s and we've got this new programme we're introducing here and we're overlaying this. Yeah. And we're, we're adding all these things to people. And effectively, um, when you're looking at improving the way that work gets the best out of people i'm strongly of the opinion that we need to be taking stuff out of work leaving space for uh, for autonomy leaving space for invention for creativity for chat for making people's workloads feel feel less Spe- <coughs> specifically the average british person spends 16 hours a week in meetings <laughs> and the average british exec so like a manager spends 23 hours in meetings so then if you overlay that with, you know, the best guess is that the average person in, in the workforce gets about 140 emails a day. So so yeah. you overlay those things and actually already you've crammed so much into the jar. There's not enough, there's not a lot of room for air or water. Or yeah. like, you know, there's not a, lot of, not a lot of space. And so from my perspective is we need to massively scythe down the number of meetings we're doing. We need to really optimise offices so that they don't communicate on email as much as possible. And we need to give space for people to have casual, almost incidental seeming chat because it's through those little moments of interaction where ideas come. So the manifesto really sets about doing that. So let me give you a perspective. I mean, the, the manifesto we put live, it's just a, a, a little website at newworkmanifesto.org. And there's eight changes in there, and they're remarkably trivial. And like you, anyone who looks at them would say, "Okay, well, these, there's nothing revolutionary here." One of the most important things we believe in is the importance of taking a lunch break. Yeah. And uh, and you know, you might think, "Well, there's no revolution in that." But Brits and Americans are so used to now spending our lunch breaks working, eating al desco. Desk. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And you know, you sit in there with a sandwich, and you've you've just been out, you, but it was a dash to the yeah. sandwich shop. <laughs> Yep. You're cooed in the line in boots. You might have got. Some, you come back to your desk. You eat your sandwich, doing emails, and there's really strong evidence that that not only reduces your effectiveness in the afternoon, it reduces your creativity, and it it leads to the uh, feeling of exhaustion that mm. we're increasingly seeing at work. So the changes are really, really simple: taking a lunch break, not doing emails at the weekend. You know. Um, recognising that 40 hours is enough to get a, a good volume of work done. So they're, they're trivial changes, very much with the intention of, of trying to reduce the pressures of work so that work is actually more sustainable, really. Yeah. And are all these eight changes things that individuals can do themselves? Yeah, mainly they are. So, so you know, these... Um, I'm really fascinated. My, my, my start point was thinking about work culture and what I've begin to, begun to realise, and maybe I'm sort of late to this, that to a large extent, the idea of a single monoculture that exists across tens and hundreds and thousands of people of organisations is a nice idea, but it's slightly illusory. And, mm. and what you tend to get when you try and have a consistent culture across big organisations is your number one, ref, don't respect the fact that... Um, people are either introverts and extroverts and broadly the population splits into 50-50. And if you chat to introverts, the idea that they're going to espouse certain sort of personality traits by the fact that they've joined a company is scary to them. And, Mm. you know, we we see in all the, the figures about people putting on a mask and not being them really real selves at work that one of the 
one of the consequences of these corporate cultures is that you know the introverted people feel like they need to to adopt a false persona so so look my feeling is that actually while the idea of work culture is a nice thing actually building dynamic teams and teams where people can feel like an affinity with the people who work closest to them is most important and so all of these changes are individual actions rather than rather than big corporate actions i mean the number one thing that anyone can do it's not actually in the eight but the number one thing that anyone can do to be happier at work is to turn the badge off their email uh, yeah. saying how many emails they've got and the the guy who did that work it was a bit of work by a microsoft uh, uh researcher last year and uh when he was originally trying to do it he couldn't get a big enough group of people to commit to turning off notifications for a week so he asked them to do it for a day and two years later half of all the people who turned it off for a day had still turned their notifications off so you know it's it's the the biggest thing that anyone can do, turn notifications off your email. And at the moment you do it, you start realising in the morning, you know, that routine that you've got of checking all your message apps and checking your social media. And you realise email drops to the back of the queue yeah. because there's no immediate reminder to, to do it. And I think actually, actually that's a really good thing for, for our own sanity and mm. our own sort of uh, mental headspace, really. Yeah, I mean, in principle, it sounds like a great idea. What would be your message to people who, who kind of say... Do you know what? That's just not possible for me. Is that their own fear, just prohibiting them doing that? Yeah, the, the best thing on that, I think, is that there's some brilliant work by um, by a woman called Leslie Perlow, who did some work with the Boston Consulting Group. A Boston Consulting Group, like all consultants, they work their consultants immensely hard yeah. because they charge a, a big premium place sure. and, and uh, price. And one of the things that they always, the people who work there feel, is that they need to give 24-7 mental availability. They're always contactable. And so Leslie Perlow did two pieces of work. One where she said to people at BCG, um, tell your clients one day a week that they can't contact you. And uh, another one where people at BCG volunteered not to do emails one evening per week. So not to work one evening per week. <laughs> and uh, both of them, the, the one where they weren't available during a day, they said their clients adapted to it immediately. Because as soon as you'd laid down the ground rules, yeah. I'm not available. And then you give people other routes to contact other members of your team. People work around it. It's, it's like remarkably easy. People work around it. The other one in the evenings, they found that um, not only did they all feel the immediate benefit of not working one, email, one evening a week, but they found that there was a benefit to their productivity, to their level of energy. Their family felt happier. And... and Generally, I think what Leslie Perlow has in indicated is that every time we push back against email, every time we assert control on it, it actually yields far more than we think. But there's this learned helplessness that effectively, because there's like a deluge of email, this this constant sort of stream of email that we feel we're inundated with it and we feel like we can't resolve it. And in fact, we can, but we just need to be more resolute. So I think you know, I, I would say that the BCG examples are probably as, as good as any examples because yeah. those people are under hot demand. So so my feeling is email will yield far more than we think. I saw this brilliant thing. I, I interviewed um, a guy called Rory Sutherland, who's like an advertising legend. And uh, he said he was going to a client meeting in Geneva 
and he set off to Geneva and from his house it's sort of like a six or seven hour journey and uh, when he got to Geneva he landed in Geneva and he was just pulling out of the airport in a cab and he looked at his phone and there was uh, there was a, an email he got on day 20 it was, it was an email saying the meeting's cancelled and he'd, he'd, he'd had to do two airports to get there on a train. Um. And um, he contacted the office and uh, his PA said, oh, I emailed you. And he said, how crazy is it that we've got a device that rings when something's urgent? You know, that someone yeah. could have phoned me and spoken <laughs> to me instantly rather than wait until I was connected. But we don't use it. And I think that's the challenge is that we're, we're actually, <coughs> we're, in such a state of learned helplessness about email, we're not even using the other things that are available to us. So very easily, if someone pe feels like they can't push or get back against email, what you find is that if you put on your out of office or you put a message saying, if you want to contact me urgently, I always answer my phone. Yeah. However, if, you, if you're okay to wait, then I'll be responding to emails. And I think actually there's far more uh, routes for us to, to control the way it works. The challenges are, when you ask people whether their boss is doing a good job, the number one thing that they report is whether their boss answers their email quickly. Mm -hmm. So like, we've got into this state now, and you must know it yourself, when you, when you WhatsApp someone, if you don't get two blue ticks oh, yeah. straight away, <laughs> like, what's going on? Why am I getting two blue ticks? Yeah. We've got this sense that, you know, constant availability yeah. is the sign of a good person. And I think the more that we can push back against it, that's the only way we're going to get a bit of mental uh, mental escape, I think. Mm. And it goes back to what you were saying earlier in terms of, you know, I've certainly observed in, in several different organisations, you know, you'll have two people sitting next to each other, but they'll email each other and have a conversation. Whereas actually just stopping and chatting over the desk would probably be much more productive and healthy. Yeah, that's what um, that's what Sandy Pentland said. Sandy Pentland effectively looked at the genesis of an idea and he said, the way an idea forms is that you, I come over to you and I say something and you wince and there's a <laughs> micro expression that is such that when I go over and I then say the same thing to, to Graham, I adapt it slightly and I change it slightly. And now Graham is actually sort of, you know, he's slightly more in agreement. Yeah. And I'm thinking, okay, so I've tweaked it slightly. And, and ideas don't come out about these, these epiphanies. They're not eureka moments. Ideas are normally sort of pieces of plasticine that we adapt and we adjust yeah. based on the reactions of 20 people. So they don't tend to, to get born fully formed, but more we sort of improve them as time goes on. Mm. And that's what chat does. Chat just allows you to knock the rough edges off things. Yeah. Okay, great. Uh, so the the new work manifesto then that you have, how much do you role model or embody that within your your personal interactions and work life? Yeah, so, so the number one thing we put on the new work manifesto is presumed permission. And that was directly formed by someone who works at Twitter coming to me and saying, I don't know what I'm allowed to do. And, okay. and what we've really seen in the last 15 years, since email arrived on everyone's phone, the average working day has gone up from seven and a half hours a day to nine and a half hours yeah. a day. Sort of, I always think of Bob Crow, you know, the tube union worker. Yeah. Who, yeah. Anytime that you did anything that, that changed the terms and conditions of tube union workers, um, he would go and strike. And, yeah. you know, all of us took a 27% increase in, in our working day with no additional pay. Yeah. And actually with the end result that we feel exhausted all the time. So, you know, so anyone who feels like 
um, work hasn't changed and things used to be different in my era is forgetting the fact that the working day has gone up by this big substantial yeah, amount. Yeah. And the and what normally happens is that um, every office is filled with, and all of us are filled with what someone described to me as an 18th century mill owner. This guy who um, who runs Unbound, who's the, uh, they're sort of like a, a sort of publish, they're, they're, they're like a Kickstarter for publishing. So, okay. you know, you take a book idea to them and they yeah. try and fund it. But he said this brilliant thing to me. He said inside of him, and he hates it, is an 18th century mill owner. Because every time he looks out across the floor at his office, yeah. if he can't see everyone at their desks, everyone effectively at their, their loom for the mill, uh, he thinks people aren't working. And yeah. forgetting the fact that now all of us are on our phones and like all our homes have got the same connectivity as the office. And, you know, forgetting all of that. And so he says... You know, he hates himself for it, but he knows it happened. For him and for for that, read every office. Every office has got people who are checking what we're doing. Every office has got sort of people who've got an opinion whether we're coming and going. Yeah. And so, um, and so the the big thing for me was someone came to me and said, "What have we got permission to do?" Now we don't run a an overt work from home scheme here. So you know, but she was basically saying. If I've got a big presentation to do, can I go uh, two hours early to do it at home? Mm. And my feeling was, you know, like we, the reason why we put the very start of the manifesto, presume permission, is because my feeling was, yeah, look, work on the basis that until I tell you otherwise, you've got permission to do these things. So, yeah, it really does inform uh, what happens here and, you know, we, we try and give people the autonomy to, to decide those things. Okay. And so your role at Twitter then, if we if we move on to that, can you tell us a little bit about, about what you do, kind of how you got to where you are now and what your remit is? Yeah, so I joined Twitter, um, uh, so like my background had been in radio and then magazines and then I went to work at, at YouTube, part of Google, for four years Yeah, and then came to Twitter when we we had about, um, there was, was sort of, you know, around 10 or so people in the, in the office in a small... Um, uh, a, a small sort of uh, Avanta office down in, in Great Titchfield Street. And there was a few of us there. It was b brilliant for culture, actually, because, you know, the floor was falling apart. There were <laughs> mice there. It was sort of oh. very, sort of very startup feel. Um, in the course of the time I've been at Twitter, I've been at Twitter about six years. I, I was running uh, the UK and, and now my job is to look after Europe. So what that means really is that, you know, I, we've got people in France, in London, in Dubai, in in Germany, and more than anything, I know that they want to get on with running their job. So, so my job really is sort of to to give them the autonomy to do that, to give them the scope that they feel they can get on with doing it. But whenever they're running into problems or they feel like you know. A bit of extra energy or a bit of extra someone shouting on their behalf would help yeah. then I step in to do that so I'm a bit like um it's it's a bit like when sort of uh someone brings their dad along to add a bit of support you know <laughs> like I I add moral support but try not to loom too much over their shoulders really and I guess you know we Twitter um 
we've had a really good year and probably the the reason why we've had a good year is we've probably got far clearer about what twitter is so you know you know, um most people i think open about five apps on their phone normally yeah and the question we had to ask ourselves is, why do people open the Twitter app? Now, it might be you open certain apps because you want to connect with your friends, certain apps because you want to message people. Why do you open Twitter? And I think what we've got better at in the last two years to say, you open it because of news. Yeah. And it might be yeah. news because you're worried about trains being delayed, or it might be news because you want to see what people are saying about Celebrity Love Island, or it might <laughs> be news about, you know, Brexit or American politics. But whatever your interest is... Twitter's about the latest breaking news on those things. So we're not really about friends yeah. to the same extent that other social networks are. We're more sure. about sort of connecting people with news. So, um, you know, my, my job is that we're having big success with that in France. We're having fantastic success with that in, in the Middle East. Great, you know, UK has always been really strong for us. And my, my aim really is to make sure the people who work in all those countries feel like someone's got their back, really. Okay. And how's the, so you talked about, you know, when there was just 10 people and um, the office and everything, it's obviously grown exponentially since then. How would you describe the way that the culture has evolved as the business has evolved? Yeah, um, I think, you know, there's a magical size of any company. So, you know, when, when a company's sort of 30 to 60 people, there's just a delight because you don't have to have meetings, you don't have to have emails, you know, you can just scurry over to someone's yeah. desk, pull up a chair and, and there's, there's a magic to that that I think anything that gets bigger than that struggles to, to fully replicate um, but so that was uh, a magical time and, and there were a couple of um, human things that happened at the time that made us a, a really closely bonded um, team at the time and then uh, but as as time's gone on, I think it's become bigger, and you know, there's there's a few hundred here now. But um, so what you tend to find there is that you know people aren't involved in every hiring decision, yeah, or they um, or there's a there's a broader group of people. The thing we find that is most effective is we have a Friday afternoon meeting at four thirty, which we call tea tea time, and. You could largely say it's apropos nothing. You know, it's sort of, it's a meeting about um, all we do really is we talk about um, what someone in the office does. You know, so it's, it's, there's no direct agenda. We occasionally have, occasionally, but not every week, have announcements about what Twitter's doing, but not every week. Um, it's more a get to know you about the people who work in and around the office. And then we always end with a story about the way that Twitter has been used to some extent in the news that week. OK. So you might say, right, OK, well, this doesn't feel like burning, pressing issues. But I think what that meeting does is it gives people the opportunity just to connect with each other. Yeah. And what you tend to find is just by getting people in that room with you know, a slice of pizza or a... a uh, a soft drink or a glass of wine people tend to have other discussions there and so you, you tend to find that room is filled with chatter before filled with chatter afterwards and even though the 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 content of the meeting itself you might say all oh, right okay i don't see how that's driving the agenda of the company it's sort of what i think of as a moment of synchronization people sort of coming together and and getting um connected to each other so actually that's one of the most 
powerful things we do to drive the culture actually yeah and creating that affinity between colleagues yeah, yeah. there's an interesting one i chatted to um i chatted to someone who works at an advertising agency called uh younger rubicon and and she said one of the most effective things they do is on thursdays and you'd be embarrassed to put it down and write it down but they have something called crisp thursday and <laughs> every thursday one of their receptionists buys a selection of different crisps and they're laid out on a table at 4.30. And if she's been travelling around the world, she'll bring back crisps from Bolivia. And if she's been, uh, if it's Halloween, she'll have Halloween-related crisps. And there'll be a theme to it. And they're all laid out on a table and people just come along and grab a drink and and chat and, and then go back to their desk. She said most people are there for 10, 15 minutes. But she says the place is buzzing. Everyone always goes to it. People feel annoyed if there's a meeting scheduled over it. <laughs> and she said, if you asked anyone to write down the effect of that on our business, we'd be embarrassed to put it down. But if you watch what it does to the building, and there are teams about 130 people, it energises the whole yeah. interaction with people. And... My feeling is that those things have got far more value than we ever admit. Mm. You know, those um, forced bits of interaction where they seem so innocuous that people are happy to participate in them have far more value than sometimes the scheduled four-hour yeah. sync meetings yeah. where people are going through bullet points. Yeah, through agenda, exactly. Mm. I'm going to steal that idea, I think. My it's team love crisps. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, you know, I chatted to a guy, um, one of the founders, Richard Reed, one of the founders of Innocent yeah. Smoothies, and he said, like, you know, when they were creating their company, they they sort of wrote all of their values on the wall. And, yeah. And, uh, and one of the values, you know, there were all manner of things, whether they were a dog company or a cat company. Where, and he said one of them was we were pro-cheese. <laughs> right. <laughs> and he said, and the cheese club happens every month at Innocent Still. He no longer works there. And it's one of the most actively participated things. Why? Because it's sort of... In irrelevance, but it allows people to come together in a really relaxed way. So yeah. I think those things, even though we'd probably scru- struggle to decide what the benefit is, you know, in a world obsessed with data and ROI, would probably say there's no there's no return on investment of this. But actually, you know, these things have far more impact yeah. than we ever think. Those connections, exactly. Yeah. So you're a kind of digital company. Um, do you find that the brand that you've built up over the years as Twitter helps you attract future talent easily? Um, yes, I do. Um, yes, I do. I mean, you know, I think it, it, it's interesting. These things have gone full circle, really. You know, I remember when I first sort of got into digital, that to move into online and digital seemed geeky and, yeah. you know... And almost embarrassing, and and definitely now I think um, it has a big appeal. I mean, it's worth saying that when I go on holiday, I never tell people where I work. Normally, because <laughs> uh, because normally if you tell people that you work at Twitter, the next thing they say is they say I don't get Twitter. A lot, you know. We're, <laughs> we're, um, I think we'd accept that Twitter's not for everyone, and you know, some people are more interested in news than. A, but the last thing I want to be doing while I'm sort of on a holiday on the Costa Brava is trying to explain yeah. to someone who they should follow on Twitter. So um, I never tell people where I work. I normally say I work at the internet <laughs> or I work at an internet firm. Um, but yeah, it's definitely helps. And I think, you know, these, over time there's a recognition that people, 
the, the fabric that everything's constructed on now is 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 of code and so you know there's definitely um people feel they want to add to their skills by by coming to coming to work at a place like twitter and when you're looking for future talent then what are the kind of the key skills that you're looking for yeah i think the number one skill that anyone's looking for is a sense of curiosity so when um one of our values at twitter is to seek diverse perspectives so albeit that everyone who works here needs a Twitter account. There's a lot of people who've come to work at Twitter who didn't use Twitter before they came here. So, you know, it, it wasn't a discriminating factor. If, you, if you're not on Twitter, you could still work here. Okay. Um, however, one of the things that we're interested in is people who've got an interest in different things. So, so if someone wasn't using Twitter, you know, we'd be keen to see that that's not that they've never got round to trying it, but more, they tried it, it wasn't for them, but they love Pinterest, or they, mm. or actually, look, they love woodwork, you know, they, or yeah. they, they loved cooking, or they've got some sense of exploration and curiosity. And I think that's because those people tend to do better here. You know, someone who thinks that, and I think this goes for everyone now, but someone who thinks they've acquired all the skills they ever need by the age of 30 or 35 or 40, probably is going to have a harder time coping with work in the next 20 years mm. that someone who is sort of ready to admit I don't know anything yet and I've spent 10 years trying you know so someone who's been on a process of constant learning but feels that in the face of the way that things are changing they still don't know anything yeah is probably someone who's ready ready to accept that they haven't got all the answers is probably going to be more willing to put time into learning than someone who thinks they know it all or they know everything they need to know yeah okay so talking about the theme of of learning and and reskilling perhaps so one of the themes that we talk about at change board is around digital inclusion so obviously you know, at the moment, there's a huge wave of technological change coming in. Um, and, and we're perhaps getting to a stage where we're going to end up with some sections of society left behind by this. You know, particularly people who maybe have been in the workforce for a long time who don't necessarily have the digital skills. What What's your opinion on what's the role of kind of business and employers to to maybe help those people relearn or reskill in things like digital to make sure that they're not going to be left behind by this big revolution? Yeah, I, I think, you know, the responsibilities for business goes at both sides. So, um, you know, I spend a lot of time and, and we have a lot of organisations coming in here to try and uh, be more inclusive when it comes to coding. So we we do girls who code. We yeah. spend a lot of time, you know, um, there's quite a few of us here who do speakers for schools, which is going to state yeah. schools yeah. And, and speaking to, to kids there and trying to ensure that, you know, the um, the impact of technology hits all socioeconomic groups and, and all geographies. And, yeah, and absolutely, we, um, we there's a responsibility to try and reach digital into... Um, into sort of bigger, bigger parts of society. Mm. And you're completely right because there's, you know, while we're all swept away with the power it gives us to book flight tickets from our yeah. phone, you know, that means that the ability to book flight tickets for people who don't have technology at all becomes incrementally harder every year. So 
Absolutely. Um, we work with quite a few organisations who do that. We had we had Age UK in here last week with a, uh, a group of, of people trying to sort of bring that inclusivity to, to maybe people. Obviously, the challenge for those things is that is it's hard to do them at scale, right? You know, sure. to, to, yeah. tr to teach a 70-year-old or an 80-year-old or a 90-year-old how to use the internet is a one-on-one -on -one experience. Mm. And so it requires investment and help and support. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so future expectations then, kind of wonder if you can have a look in your crystal ball and tell me what, what, do, you, what do you think the future of work's going to look like? We've covered a lot of subjects today. Um, what are your hopes or ambitions for the future? Yeah, I think, you know, work's going to be really tw twin track because I think in the same, I, you know, my feeling is, and I, I said at the, the sort of the outset here, but enlightened work and creative and sustainable work is going to be about taking stuff out of work. It's yeah. going to be, you know, we, we've all got this frictionless ability now to create a meeting. I can send you an email now that creates an hour-long meeting with zero cost to me. Yeah. You know, the, the idea that I used to have to walk up with a paper, paper diary and, and there was an act of negotiation and justification for <laughs> yeah. a meeting is long gone. Now I send an email. And so consequently, meetings are created. They spawn each other and they, they, they generate. And um, that combined with a sort of a, a an excessive... ASAP mentality, everything has to be done urgently, means that work for a lot of people is going to be exhausting and, you know, cortisol drenched. It's going to be sort of this this very stressful thing. I think some organisations will move to a more enlightened position and, and a more progressive take on work, but there's going to be a split of those two things. The alarming thing for me is that if you look at the projections of the future work, and let's work on the basis that the projections are probably wrong in the short term and right in the long term. Okay. But when you look at like the idea of automation and the idea of, of sort of algorithms and, and machine learning taking yeah. aspects of, of work, um, that even if they won't impact a lot of people in the next 10 years, they probably will in the subsequent 10 years. And the one thing that's really clear about that is that anything that's routine or or straightforward probably will be easily taken by uh, by computers. Yeah. One forecast I saw is that anyone who earns less than thirty pound an hour, which let's be clear, is really sort of you know it's it's not it's not a tiny amount. No, it's a lot. Of anyone people, who yeah. learns uh, earns their job will be automated. So right, okay. So there's a lot of jobs that are going to be stolen by computers. Yeah. And the thing that computers will never do in the short term is be able to create, construct things, put ideas together, where I I work on the sort of the theory that all our jobs are creative because often creativity is, oh, we can improve this by doing that. We can improve this, like, slight tweaks. So we need to give people the capacity to be more creative in their jobs. We're only going to do that by reducing the amount of ridiculous emails and yep. meetings on them. <laughs> and so... Um, I'm optimistic that anyone can improve their job if they if they kill the 18th century mill owner that lives inside them. Anyone can sort of improve work, but we we need to take steps to do it. It's not going to happen on its own. Okay. And so with that in mind then, what would be your final message or piece of advice to the listeners who are listening today? 
Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the reason why we put the new work manifesto together is the thing anyone can improve their job with really simple steps. And like, you know, so we put in the new work manifesto eight changes. And I, I chatted to a brilliant woman, a woman called Laura Archer, who was like espousing the idea of taking a lunch break. Yeah. And she said she started from the perspective, I'm going to take two lunch breaks a week. And she found on the day she took a lunch break, she wasn't going home and having wine. She wasn't going home and eating cake. She wasn't <laughs> sort of indulging in the, the caffeine, carbs yeah, and yeah. booze that we all fall into the trap of doing after an exhausting day of work. She was like, she was, and she was no longer going home and looking at travel websites. So she didn't have <laughs> this wanderlust. She just felt happier by taking a lunch break. Well, look, we can all do that. We can all actually... Just block out an hour in our diary and go and sit in the park or go for a, a walk or do something. So I think actually all of us got the ability to improve our life in the confines of work. But they're just these small steps that we need to do. So it's all about sort of taking back control and trying to improve what we do in work. OK, fantastic. Well, we're approaching lunchtime, so I think I'm going to pop and get myself a sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Bruce. Thank you for listening to this Change Board Future Talent podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a comment and a rating. You can also check out our other interviews and stories on our website, www.changeboard.com. We look forward to bringing you another Future Talent podcast very soon. <laughs>